This is sermon number nine in the book of Ruth. If you're new here, huge, huge fan of expository verse-by-verse teaching. If you like that, you're in a great place. Um, But tonight is our last night in the book of Ruth. Nine different Sundays, it comes to a close tonight. So, we're going to begin in chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7 of the book of Ruth. But for continuity, this is what was happening last week and, and before. Naomi gave her daughter-in-law, her widowed Moabite daughter-in-law, this plan to go in the middle of the night and propose to Boaz. This is a woman proposing to a man, an employee proposing marriage to an employer, a a non-citizen to a citizen. He says yes, it's good. But then he informs her that there's an obstacle in their way, and that is there's another guy who essentially has first dibs, tells her that he'll do his best in the morning to, to work out the details and everything he can to try to secure the right to marry her. Well, he, he goes to the city gates, and as we discussed last week, the city gates had a secondary feature in the early Iron Age in Palestine. You come into the gates, and they would actually have right along the edge of the wall, like plastered benches, and you'd go and you'd sit down, but you wouldn't sit there just to to relax or hang out. That's where you would go to conduct official administrative or legal business. And so Boaz gathers ten elders of the city. He gets the other guy who's got first dibs, the other redeemer. They sit down, and he essentially has opening remarks. He's going to make his argument. And he lets the other redeemer know that Naomi is selling the land. That's what the text says. She's selling the land. He's the nearest redeemer in line. So they're enacting the institution of Redeemer as specified in Leviticus 25, 25 to 30. And that if he wants to redeem the land and buy back the estate of Elimelech, Naomi's husband who had died, then he has the right to do that. But if he doesn't, let him know right now because Boaz says, if you don't, I will. The other Redeemer says, I'll take that deal. Boaz then complicates the matters and says, in verse 5 of chapter 4, the day that you buy the land back... You also have to marry Ruth the Moabite in order to perpetuate, to continue the line of Elimelech. He complicates the matters. Boaz's arguments, as we said last week, are not airtight, but they are strong. He makes his argument based on the institution of Redeemer, which most people think, well, yeah, we got to redeem Ruth. But the institution of Redeemer was not set up to redeem another person. It was set up so that if the land that the family owned ever passed outside the family, there would be someone to buy it back and bring it to the family. So he, he borrows that principle and ties that application very closely, the application found in Leviticus 25, 25 to 30, very closely with what is known as the leveret marriage, as specified in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. Well, that text argues that in such cases where... A husband dies without leaving his wife and his children, that if there is an unmarried brother, he would be obligated to come and marry his brother's wife and continue on his line. So that's the premise that the Boaz is arguing. It's strong, it's not airtight. He, he's arguing like this. Legally, we're not obligated to continue on the line of Elimelech. But morally, we are obligated. That's the right thing to do. 
Why, while our brother, our relative Elimelech, lays dead and buried in Moab? If we take his land, if we take his estate, how can we not continue on his line? How can we not take care of Ruth and Naomi? No, legally we're not obligated, but morally certainly we are obligated. Well, he creates quite the dilemma for the other redeemer, who, as we said last week, had four different options he could have chosen from. One which would have been, listen, Boaz, I understand what you're saying, but you and I both know how this works. Legally, I have every right to the land as specified in Leviticus 25, 25 to 30. And you and I both know that as nice as that sentiment sounds, neither one of us is legally obligated to marry Ruth and continue the line of Elimelech. We're not one of Malon's brothers. So I'm going to take the land and forget about that. He could have done that. That would have been one of the options. Boaz's court case, it was strong, but it wasn't airtight. But of course, even though it wasn't airtight, it was strong. And should the Redeemer take that option, he would have brought great shame upon his family in the presence of the elders. Because, well, he's right. He's right. Like, that would have been the right thing to do, to continue on the line of Elimelech. And so the Redeemer, this other dude, decides, you know, this isn't for me. Boaz, you take my right, lest I impair my own inheritance with this Moabite. And that's where we pick up today in verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. In verse 7, the narrator seemingly interrupts this legal court proceeding to let the reader know that apparently this custom of taking off your sandal to seal the deal wasn't really practiced anymore. It wasn't understood at the time of writing this book. And so he does that. Verse 8, So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. This would be equivalent to you applying a handwritten wet signature on something, maybe even having a notary. I'm handing him a sandal. It makes it legally binding and official. Then verse 9, Then Boaz said to the elders, And Boaz said to the elders, and all the people, apparently it was just a redeemer and the ten elders, and now there's a crowd that's gathered. So he's talking to all the people. He says, you are witnesses this day. You're witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion unto Malon. If anyone ever challenges his right, the estate, his marriage to Ruth, all he has to do is produce the sandal. That's all he has to do. Okay, this All he has to do is produce the sandal, and if he needs to, call these witnesses. If anyone ever challenges that claim. And he says, in verse 9, you're witnesses. I've bought this state from Naomi. Now, for those of you who were here last week, this is going to sound a lot similar back in verse 3 of chapter 4 where he says that Naomi is selling the land here. In verse 9 of chapter 4, he says that he's buying it from her. So, verse 3, she's selling it. Verse 9, he's buying it. That's, that's what the NIV and my beloved ESV says. But as I explained last week, this is not what's actually happening. That's not what's happening. She's not selling it. He's not buying it. In fact, the entire court proceedings up to this point aren't even about buying it. The court proceedings were about transferring the right of Redeemer to the Redeemer. That's what this is about. 
What is happening here, the whole selling, buying in, what's actually taking place is that Naomi is simply relinquishing the right to hold it in trust and then transfer that right to the Redeemer. I'll say that one more time. She's not selling it. Rather, this is being held in trust and she is now transferring that from the trust to the Redeemer. Whatever Redeemer, you know, ends up deciding they're going to take that, that's what's happening. And as I said last week, this is because she has no legal right to sell it. As specified in Numbers chapter 27, 8 to 11, when Elimelech dies or any husband dies, that land goes right past, that estate goes right past the wife and to the children, male, female, whatever. If there's no children, then it goes to the brothers down the line, who's ever next. And it's this redeemer who's apparently next, Boaz is second. So she has no legal right here. I think this is really important because we think, oh, well, now she's sold it, so she's got like 200K in her pocket. That's not what's happening. When she gets back from Moab, she's been there at least some 10 years, she gets back. It's not like, oh, Ruth, yeah, just stay with me. I'll just open up the door. Boom, we've got this great estate. She has no legal right as specified in Numbers 27, 8 to 11. It doesn't. People say, where are they living? I made the argument. They're probably living in very third world conditions. You go back to chapter 2 when Ruth asked permission from Naomi to glean in the fields. Now, most of you are familiar with the Mosaic Law. Some of you may be familiar with the Mosaic Law that specified that when they went and harvested the field, they had to leave the corners untouched. Anything that they gathered up accidentally dropped on the ground, they had to leave that. It was a provision there in the law to take care of widows, orphans, and aliens. However, this provision, even though it was for people in economic struggle, struggling economically, this provision would frequently be denied. So when Ruth shows up that day to glean in the fields, commonly people would just say, no, you're out of luck. You're not gleaning in the fields. They'd frequently be turned away. But more to the point, when they would get permission, they would be a prime target to be a victim of abuse. I mean, who's going to care about some widow, orphan, or alien after all? Which is why throughout chapter 2, Boaz makes the comment first to Ruth. He says, listen, you come glean in my fields anytime you want. That's totally fine. No one's going to bother you. You're going to be safe here. After he has lunch with Ruth later that day, he gathers his male servants and says, hey guys, listen up. Ruth over there, she's going to come glean the field anytime she wants. You got that? And I want you to actually take stuff out and throw it on the ground. And no one, no one, not one of you is going to give her a hard time. Not one of you is going to say jack to her. If you got a problem with that, you can keep your mouth shut. You got it? It was very dangerous thing for her to go glean in the fields. Women would frequently be victims of abuse. The fact that she's in such a position in chapter 2 where she has to ask Naomi permission to go glean the fields to scavenge for food, I think reveals that they're just making it. And that's a huge risk for her to go glean in the fields. No guarantee she'll get permission. And furthermore, she very well may be a victim of abuse. So no, when they get back from Moab, it's not like, oh yeah, we'll just go into the estate. Yeah, here's, here's, here's my, my husband's estate. Here's his land. Here's the house. They're probably living like in a cardboard box. You say, all right, why is that all significant? I got it. She's not selling the land. She's merely relinquishing the right of it being held in trust and transferred to the other redeemer. What's the point there? My point is this. And the reason I spent so much time going over it is I don't want for you to think for one moment that somehow she's fine. I don't want you to think that somehow she's self-sufficient. Because at the end of the day, the fact that she and the fact that Ruth are even alive is a miracle. The fact that they haven't died yet is only attributing to God. They got no one else to take care of them but God. 
Apart from God, they probably would have been dead by now. It's not like she's got, oh, I sell the land, and now I got all this money, I take care of myself, and until we sell it, we're living in this mansion. That's not happening here. They're hanging on by threads. Barely. Just barely. Verse 10. Also, Ruth the Moabite, that's an important phrase. I'm going to come back to that. We're going to spend some time on that one in a second. But also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate, to continue the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. That reference to the gate of his native place, this would have been another way to say or another designation for the town that he's from, that is Bethlehem. So what he's saying here in verse 10 is, he gets to marry Ruth, and one of the byproducts of marrying Ruth is that the name of Elimelech, the name of Malon, it won't be cut off. It will continue. It won't be cut off. It will continue on. That's significant. More on that in just a moment. We go into verse 11 then, and it says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. So apparently in biblical Hebrew, uh, it has no word for yes. So he tells the people, You're witnesses, and they say, We are witnesses. That's, that's their response. We're, you're witnesses? Yes. We're witnesses. That's, that's their response here. And then the people are going to pray and call on Yahweh to bless Boaz and Ruth. And this is what they say. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives. You may remember he wanted to marry Rachel as Uncle Laban deceived him. Had to marry Leah, then had to marry Rachel. But it was from Rachel and Leah that Jacob fathered his 12 sons. That Jacob, that ultimately we get the 12 tribes of Israel at least directly and indirectly, because Joseph had his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which made up two of the tribes. But but that's that's what they're saying. Like, may this woman who's coming into your house, may she be like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. The, the phrase, built up the house of Israel, it's another way to say, to have descendants. May you have a bunch of little Boazes and Ruth running around. That's, that's what they're saying here. May God bless you in that way. And then says, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Those two phrases need a little bit of unpacking because there's a wide range of meaning. Act worthily. You read that, you're like, okay, they're, they're blessing him. They're saying, all right, but be on your best behavior. I mean, that's, act worthily. You better, you better act worthily, but this, this word, this phrase has a wide range of meaning, which Given the context here of marital blessings, they're praying for him, it's probably best to see it in view of to act worthily or to make wealth. That's one of the other range of meanings that this word has, this phrase, to act worthily, to make wealth, that is to prosper. Like, may you act worthily, may you act in such a way that you make wealth, that you prosper, Boaz, which contextually would have made sense. And then it says, and may you be renowned, or may your name be called upon, or, or renowned. May your name continue on. Now this is the third time there's been a direct or indirect mention of this. 
His argument back in chapter 4, verse 5, is we need to take care of Ruth and continue the line of Elimelech to perpetuate his name. You may remember that. And then today in verse 10, he says, one of the results of marrying Ruth is that the name of the dead will not be cut off. And now the people pray a prayer of blessing on Boaz, and they say, may your name continue. May your name be renowned. May your reputation live on. Is there something to that? Yes, there's there's something to that. You see, the, the ancients believed that if a person's name was never mentioned after their death, that they cease to exist. In fact, Isaiah 14.20 says, You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers nevermore be named. Jacob's son Joseph, when they're in Egypt, before Jacob dies, he's going to bless Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he calls them over, and this is Genesis, I think, 48, 16 to 17. But he calls, he has the boys come over, and he blesses them, and he prays that his name and the name of his father and grandfather, that, that Abraham and Isaac, that their names, that they may continue on through his boys. It was a, a terrifying thing for people within the ancient Near East to think that their line, their their line may somehow be cut off. They had this thinking that, like I said, if, if your name was not mentioned after death, that you may very well cease to exist. Now, that's sometimes difficult for us to wrap our minds around because we understand the, the afterlife in terms of 2 Corinthians 5. You die here with Jesus, right? To, to be away from the body is to be home with the Lord. That's, that's good. So we know, boom, we die. That's okay. I'm with Jesus. That's good. But for people in the ancient Near East, this understanding was less clear. I remember Dr. Yates, he was one of my seminary professors. I was taking a Psalms class, and he said they did not have the type of view of the afterlife that we did. Did they understand that there was an afterlife? Yes, but to what extent? It was very vague, and it was very ambiguous exactly how that played out after death. This is a concern. In fact, this is at the heart of Boaz's argument in the court case. We're not legally obligated to, to marry and continue the line of Elimelech, but shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? How do we not continue his line? And then here in verse 10 of chapter 4, one of the benefits of marrying Ruth is that the, line, that the names of the dead won't be cut off. And here the people pray a prayer of blessing on Boaz, and they say, may your name be renowned in Bethlehem. May your name continue on and live through your descendants. May your reputation never die as they continue to bless him. Then verse 12, the blessing continues, and may your house be like the house of Perez. Now Perez, spoiler alert, he's actually Boaz's great-great-great-grandfather. A couple of greats up there. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. It seems that the narrator, as he's writing this, he's got Genesis 38 in the back of his mind. Because he has it in the back of his mind, because he mentions it, I figure, well, we should probably mention it and discuss it. Jacob has several sons. All know son Joseph, number two guy in Egypt, but his other son Judah. Well, Judah has a son, and Judah finds his oldest son a wife, a nice young gal named Tamar. Tamar, her husband, dies. 
before she gets to have any kids in a very similar situation that Ruth found herself when Malon died. Tamar, her husband's dead, no kids. Well, Judah goes back to that leveret marriage, Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. He, he gets one of the unmarried brothers, Onan. He says, go, marry Tamar, give kids. Well, Onan wasn't too thrilled about doing this, decided he didn't want to do it. God killed him. So Tamar, once again, is left, widowed, no husband, no kids. And so Judah tells Tamar, listen, I've got a young boy. Once he grows up, then he'll marry you. Until then, sit tight, be in a state of widowhood, and I'll get back to you. Well, that young boy grows up, but Judah doesn't keep his word to her. The young boy grows up, does not keep his word to Tamar, his daughter-in-law. So one day, Judah's out on the road. He sees what he thinks is a prostitute, but it's not. It's his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Doesn't know that it's Tamar. Thinks it's a prostitute. In a moment of what you would probably say really bad decision making, decides to essentially pick her up. They have some relationship and she gets pregnant. Now before he's leaving, he says, oh, I'll send a goat to you. And she's like, well, before you send a goat to me as payment for my services, give me your ring. I'll give it back when I get the goat. Okay, whatever. Sends the servant, brings the goat. They can't find her. Three months later, now Judah finds out that Tamar's pregnant. He's like, bring her. We're going to kill her. So she says, that's fine. You want to kill me? That's fine. I'm three months pregnant. This belongs to the man who got me pregnant. Judah, of course, is shocked, right? What's What? And he says, surely this woman has acted more righteously than me. I didn't keep my promise to her. I didn't keep my word to her. She gives birth to Perez. That's Boaz's great, great, great grandfather. And so here the narrator says, and may your house, this is the blessing they're, they're pouring out on Boaz, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, this incestuous relationship because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, the purpose here is not to compare Judah and Tamar to Boaz and Ruth. Okay, this this guy who didn't keep his word, he was a liar, and Tamar who was really deceitful and bad, and then Boaz and Ruth, who are viewed as exemplary characters. That's not the point. Rather, the point is to say this, as they're calling these blessings down from Yahweh on Boaz and Ruth, it's to say this, if God was willing, despite lying Judah, despite trashy Tamar, to bless them, how much more is he going to bless Boaz and Ruth? And so they continue these these blessings upon them. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore her son. The phrase, and she, and he went into her, you see it throughout Scripture. It's probably not what you're thinking. It actually means he stepped into the room, and he went into her. The actual, that's what it means. He's actually coming into the room, the bride, the bridal chambers, the bedroom, for the purpose of intercourse. And then, of course, God fulfills those blessings gives them a son. Verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life 
and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. Rather, they affirmed the name given to him, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, short for Obadiah. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then he lists the genealogy connecting the son of Judah and Tamar, Perez, going all the way down to David. <clears throat> she gets back after being gone 10 years in Moab. End of chapter 1. <clears throat> at the beginning of barley harvest. She gets back at the end of chapter 1 at the beginning of barley harvest. You may remember all the women of the town, they come out. Naomi, her name means pleasant. Naomi, is it you? And she says, don't call me Naomi. There's nothing pleasant about me. She said, call me Mara. It means bitterness. For God has emptied me out. She, and we talked about this. She's very much like Eeyore at, at that moment in her life. And now God, and we see this, and bless her. The lady said, you, you He's given you a son, given her a grandson. And Ruth, how about Ruth? She's more than seven sons. She's been through a lot. I mean, five verses into the story, she buried her husband and her sons. I've been hard on Ruth throughout this, or Naomi throughout this series, but she's been through a lot. And here God restores this thing. Doesn't have to restore it. Doesn't have to give her a grandson. Doesn't have to give her someone like Ruth worth more than seven sons. He doesn't have to. He owes her nothing. Just as he owes us nothing. And we struggle with that, right? We're Especially as Americans and sense of entitlement. God owes us nothing. He owes us absolutely nothing. He took away now he's given back. See, what I want is, I want us to be able to have and, and, and think in such a term that he, we say, blessed be God. Whether he gives, whether he takes away, I'm still going to bless his name because he's God. And honestly, he's given us way more than we deserve. I'm sure some of you, and I'm not trying to downplay, especially if some of you have had a rough week or month or year, downplay what you're going through. But the fact is, is, you say, talk about God's fairness. If God was really fair, we'd all be in hell. He owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. I mean, the fact that you're sitting here right now, you're hearing my words, you're listening online, whatever, you've been given more than you deserve. We've got someone like Asiya Bibi who's on death row in Pakistan for her faith. And some of us are still whining and sniveling like Naomi was earlier in this story. No, he, he owes us nothing. Whether he gives, whether he takes away, oh, that we might have the type of response that we say, you're God, you're king, and I'm trusting you. Whatever you have for my life, I'm trusting you. Blessed be your name, King Jesus. But he, in his divine hesed, or hesed, his covenant kindness, gives back, pours back. 
gets back to Naomi. You know, I, I made a comment earlier on in chapter 4, verse 10, that phrase, Ruth the Moabite. I wanted to save it for the end because I think there's a lot of application I want to squeeze from that verse. Earlier on in the court case, in sermon number 8, chapter 4, verse 5, he mentions the fact, as soon as you buy the estate, you've got to marry Ruth the Moabite. No doubt, in reasoning in such a way that he's playing on anti-Moabite sentiment. But here in verse 10, he's like, I get to marry Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite? No barrier. No obstacle for him. Loves her. Wants to be with her. I've said throughout this series how remarkable it is that this book is named after Ruth. There's 39 Old Testament books. It's the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Israelite. More of the point, it's named after a Moabite. The Israelites, they didn't think very highly of the Moabites. Lots of different reasons. In fact, going all the way back to the story of Lot, when he leaves Sodom and Gomorrah, his wife turns to a pillar of salt. Fast forward a few months, he's living in some caves with his daughters. They're dealing with some first world problems. Some of you ladies know, they're like, I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. I'm never going to meet a guy. Never going to get to have kids. And so, of course, the oldest daughter has this plan. It's probably the worst plan in the history of ever, and that is to get their dad drunk and then have sex with him. That way, at least they get to have kids. She does so, gives birth to a baby boy named Moab. That's Ruth's great-grandpa. Israelites don't think very highly of the Moabites. And here he says, Mary Ruth the Moabite. And I know that many of you struggle with Am I ever going to meet someone that my past, or my sins, or my baggage, or my history, am I ever going to meet someone that they'll view me the way Boaz viewed Ruth, and it's not an obstacle for them, it's not a barrier for them? I know that's a thought. A lot of single people in here. I remember... uh, Seven or eight years ago, I was 23 at the time I came to see you. That was one of my thoughts. One of my girlfriends had broken up with me again. I came and I'm like, Pastor Dane, am I, am I ever going to meet a girl who views me the way Boaz viewed Ruth? That, that my history, my story, my mistakes, my sin, that the trashy part of maybe my life or even associate with me indirectly, that, that she's going to see me the way Boaz saw Ruth. It's not going to be an obstacle. It's not going to be a barrier. And he said, son, he says that a lot, son. <laughs> Apparently you've called a lot of people son. He said, son, the woman that God has for you It's not going to be an obstacle or barrier. The woman that God has for you, the husband, ladies, that God has for you, is going to view view you the way the Father does, forgiven. That trashy part of your life, those mistakes, some of you, the mistakes that happened last week, last month, over Christmas break that you haven't even told people about, yeah, that too. He's going to view you that way. Encourage you with that. Some of you think way too much about this stuff. You don't trust the Lord enough about this. It eats away at you, just thinking about it all day long. But I would tell you this, more important than that. Is the future Boaz. Boaz's great-grandson. I'm not talking about David. I'm talking about the Messiah. 
the one who came. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death we should have died. He paid the price we could not afford to pay. Despite the fact that, as Romans 1.30 says, that we hate God. Don't love him, we hate him. Despite the fact that Romans 3.10.11 says, we don't seek after him. Despite the fact that Romans 5.10 says, we're enemies of God. Despite the fact that Romans 8.7 says, even our minds are hostile to God, opposed to God. Doesn't submit to God's law, can't submit to God's law. He says, I don't care. I love you anyways. Your past, your history, no obstacle. That trashy Moabite part that you wish really wasn't a part of you. Those mistakes you made. says, I love you anyways. Or have you not heard that it was said? God shows his love for you. He shows his love for you. God shows his love for you in the wall. We were still sinners. We're trashy Moabites. He died for us. See, that's the, the really great news. The future Redeemer. Boaz foreshadows that one to come for all of us. That's good news for some of us who adding a lot of trashiness to our resume this last week or this last month or the last year who haven't been living your life like Boaz and Ruth but more like Tamar and Judah. That's the good news. That's the hope. That's the story for those of us who've placed our faith in him, not just as Savior, but bow the knee as Lord. So as the band comes, we're going to take communion tonight. We do it differently at Lynchburg City Church. You don't have to be a member at Lynchburg City Church to take the bread, the juice, the pastor Dane and I will be serving you shortly, but you do have to be a Christian. For those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, for those of you who've received Jesus who've received him as as who he really is, the bread of life, the resurrection and the life, the truth and the way, then you're welcome to come. You're welcome to come, but I I would remind you all of this. If there's something that you need to work out first, deal with that right now. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 11 that we not take communion in an unworthy manner. God actually killed people in that story for taking it in an unworthy manner. And so, it's no rush. When you're ready, you come. When you're ready, you come. Lord, we love you. I thank you for this story tonight. Thank you for all these characters, flawed as they are. And my prayer tonight for us is that our hope would not be found in abstract Christianese sayings, but that our hope would be found in you, our Redeemer, who despite that trashy Moabite past that we have, you came, you lived, you died, you rose again for us. And I pray, Lord, that that would be hope for us, that we would rest in that promise in those truths. 
And God, that we remember that you are a good God. If, if this was all about fairness, we'd be in hell anyways. I pray that, Lord, regardless of what season of life that we're in, Naomi buries her husband and her two sons in the first five verses. In the end, you, you give her this amazing daughter worth more than seven sons. You give her this grandson. Regardless of what season of life that we're in, that our response, good or bad, whether you give, whether you take away, would be to say, I trust you, Lord. Bless you, God. That's hard. And I know that without your help, we can't respond like that. And so as St. Augustine would pray so often, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Enable us, God, to love you. Good times, bad times. To love you well. Amen.